Let's mosey on over to Genesis chapter 36 this evening. Genesis is one of those easier books in the Bible to find. It's right at the front. Well, this quick start series we've been doing, man, I mean, it's a mess. If you don't have your Bible on your app, if you have a, you know, your Bible in page form and you've got to find Obadiah, man, you're just, you're just in trouble. If you are working through our Read the Bible in One Year plan, and you've finished with Genesis already, and uh, there you saw some of the greatest stories of, of the Bible, some of those really lasting stories that, you know, if you're raised in a Christian home, they're some of the first stories you learn. They're just fantastic. Adam and Eve, the flood, the life of Abraham, Joseph's saga. Um, but as you go through those chapters, you get to Genesis 36, and it feels a little bit out of place. It, at least it did to me. You know, you're tracking with Jacob and the crazy life he had and all the crazy stuff he was doing. And then all of a sudden, you get to verse 1 of Genesis 36, and it feels kind of out of the blue. And it says, now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Now, Esau is a major character, and certainly in this section of Genesis, he's talked about a lot. You know, but in all honesty, I got to this chapter... And I found myself thinking, yeah, who cares? Who, oh, what do I care about Esau's kids and what hills he lived in? Um, and it, it, seemed, it just seemed out of place. It seems like a big section of real estate to give a guy whose story is effectively over. I mean, you look, at, you look at this and you're reading through the chapters and you think, yeah, well, the story's about Jacob and Esau is a supporting character. What do I care about what happened to him because I'm tracking with Jacob? And, and you think about the greater narrative that God is telling in the Bible, alluding to in our video tonight about how God is working to bring a redeemer to earth to save mankind, and he was going to accomplish that through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not through the line of Esau. And so he is a character, Esau, effectively exit the stage, yet we have all this detail given to us in this genealogy here in this chapter. It's all dedicated to him and the people that came after him. Um, now, it's part of a pattern that we see several times in Genesis where the Lord will show us a contrast between two characters who find themselves in the same time, in the same place, seeing the same work of God, yet they choose two very different paths, and they lead, which lead to very different outcomes in their lives and, and in their legacies. One of the characters in each of these contrasts will choose to follow the Lord and to honor Him, and their story continues in the book. The other character chooses not to pursue the Lord, and then they quickly fade away, bringing ruin into their lives and into their families. It's an interesting thing, a pattern that we can see in the Bible. We see this pattern first with Cain and Abel, then we see it with Abraham and Lot, and here we see it again with Jacob and Esau. Two characters, two paths, two opportun same opportunity, um, but these, where two men will divert, and we see uh, the fruit of each path that they take. And so as Esau's story closes out, the Bible is purposefully trying to show us something about him. As he leaves the stage, there's, there's these parting verses to not just give us uh, historical facts about who his descendants are, though that's an important part of the biblical narrative, but to speak to us. God says, hey, I want to speak to you something about this guy, about his choices, and about what happened through his family after uh, he was done with the story. Now, on first glance, you will read Genesis 36 or maybe listen to it, and there are many marks 
marks of success, humanly speaking. Esau is a wealthy man. He has a big family. They're a successful family. He conquers a mountain. He has tons of possessions. Chiefs and kings quickly descend from his sons. Um, but, but when you step back and look at him as a whole in the scripture, his legacy is one of animosity towards God and antagonism against the Israelites. You know, his descendants after this point, they'll pop up from time to time. And anytime they pop up in the Bible, it's in opposition against God's people in opposition against God's plan. So where did he go wrong? How could the son of Isaac take such a turn? where this is who you are, this is who your family is, this is the fruit of your life? Well, the answer is given to us throughout the book of Genesis, but I think it's underlined and highlighted for us in chapter 36. Listen to a a few of these selected verses from the chapter. Verse 1 again, now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Verse 8, so Esau dwelt in Mount Seir, Esau is Edom. Verse 9, and this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. Verse 19, these were the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these were their chiefs. Verse 43, these were the chiefs of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession, Esau was the father of the Edomites. I think, I think do, are we getting the picture? Do we see the, like, the, the, the tying thing that sews it all up? You know, the Bible is repetitive on purpose. If we find in a passage or in a book or in a section of scripture, repetition, it's not on accident and it's not because the, the author is bad at writing, you know. Uh, it's because the Bible is being repetitive for a purpose. The Lord doesn't want us to miss this point. You know, if we walk away from one thing, from Genesis 36, when we read it, the Lord wants us to equate Edom with Esau and remember that connection. He's cluing us into the essence of who Esau was and the guiding factor of his heart and his life, which eventuated in his legacy of destruction. It is that he was Edom, and his life bore the fruit of that Edomness, if, if we could use or coin a new word. Now, some of you know where his name Edom came from where he picked up that nickname. According to Lockyer's commentary, the word itself means red or it can mean red earth. He picked up this name back in Genesis chapter 25, verse 30. There we read this. It says, and Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew for I'm weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. This is maybe the most famous scene in the life of Esau. If you know about Esau, you know about this scene. Um, Growing up, there's a, one of the enduring memory burns that I have, one of the enduring synapses that is used up in my brain is the Donut Man song about Esau. Esau saw the soup. Who knows it? Does anybody else here know it? Esau saw the soup. Jacob made a meal and he knew he had a deal when Esau saw the soup. And so uh, this is the most famous scene in the life of Esau and in his interaction with Jacob where he comes and gets the red stew. Now Esau was a hunter. He had come in from the field and he had the tummy rumbles. Uh, And and, uh, around our house, You know, some of the people in our family, I'm not going to say who, but some of the people in our family, uh, in our little family, when they get hungry, man, we call it angry hungry, where it's like, hey, we need to eat right now. And so I would say that Esau was angry hungry. And if you read that passage, he talks about, I'm about to die because I haven't had lunch. And so he wants this stew that Jacob was making. And Jacob was making a lentil stew. 
And Esau said he wanted it. And Jacob, always the schemer, he said, yeah, I will give you a bowl of soup. I'll give you a bowl of stew here if you give me your birthright. Now, Jacob and Esau were twins. Esau was born a few minutes earlier. But even though they were twins, by being born first, he was culturally and, and legally given the birthright, which means he, upon the death of his father, would receive twice as much inheritance as any other sibling. And so Jacob said, yeah, I'll give you lunch if you will trade me your birthright for this lunch. And Esau agreed. He said, yeah, absolutely. Let's dish it up. Uh, it, it, now, I'll tell you this. At the Pensiero House, we eat some lentils. Lentils make a mean taco. I mean, we like lentil tacos a lot. I don't know if I would, if I knew I had like a financial inheritance coming to me at some point, I don't think I would trade it out for like a plate of lentil tacos. I mean, I like lentils, but, but man, Esau, he said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm ready to do that. He did it that day. And so what we learn about Esau, starting right here and, and demonstrated throughout his life in these chapters, is that he was a man who was controlled by his earthly appetites, whether it was physical hunger or his desire for riches, as we'll see, or his anger or his lust. He was always seeing red. He was like a bull that was going after that cape. He saw something in front of him and he had that appetite for it and he just went after that. Didn't matter you know, who he was going to bowl over. Didn't matter what the consequences in the future would be. He just, he was seeing red all the time. He was eating and he just followed those earthly appetites. That's was that that's what his pursuit was in life. And, and sadly, we see that his story, even though his life was about fulfilling his appetites, well, his story is not one of fulfillment at all. You track his story and you see his life is a, is a, it's a story of dissatisfaction. It's a story of anger and broken relationships and ultimately separation from and animosity towards God. Now, he was always on the hunt. We're told he's a man of the field. He was a hunter. We find him often in this uh, in these chapters out on the hunt, but we should notice that his hunting usually led to big disappointment in one way or another. Uh, the first time here in chapter 25, he was out hunting. He didn't catch anything. He was all wore out. And so it led to him giving away his birthright because he was so hungry and he, he was disappointed for not catching anything. And so he said, yeah, sure. I'll trade my birthright for lunch. The second time we see him hunting, He's out there, and he's about to get the blessing from his dad. His dad's about to die, and it's time to give these um, special blessings that the Lord allowed you know, the patriarchs to uh, make. And so he goes out on the hunt again. And the second time, he makes a kill out on the hunt, but in the meantime, he misses the blessing because Jacob has tricked his dad and taken the blessing from him. Now, here's what's interesting, I think, where we can come in as readers and as believers. As Christians, we have within us the potential to make the same type of choices that, that Jacob makes or that Esau makes, to either be a person who follows after God ultimately, though we do it imperfectly like Jacob did, or to be the person who pursues earthly appetites. Uh, the Bible refers to that as carnality. It says, hey, are you, you're of a fleshly mind, or, or are you not carnal in and that, that, that earthly appetite is called carnality in, in God's word. Now, we know just how rich our inheritance is 
in the spiritual realm. I mean, the Lord is very clear about what our inheritance is going to be if we will be the children of God and if we will go with him and follow after him and find ourselves in heaven at the end of our lives. We know exactly how rich our inheritance is and we're told that there are stores of rewards for those who will live in pursuit of heaven. And we know from experience and we know from God's word that only God can truly satisfy and that the best this world can offer, it may have flavor for a moment, but in the end, it's vanity. There's an entire book of the Bible dedicated to that idea that we can search the world over for pleasures and achievements and power and prominence and all of that. And in the end, though there may be a momentary flavor, there's no lasting satisfaction. It's vanity apart from the Lord. But we also know from experience as we live this life as believers, we know that living the spiritual life, walking the walk with Jesus and and taking up the cross, it doesn't always seem to be as gratifying as some of the things that the world is offering to us right now. You know, you wake up in the morning and the Lord has come to you. He says, hey, my mercies are new every morning. And what I want you to do today is take up your cross and walk a road that I have prepared for you. And here, here's where I want you to go. Here's what I want you to do. Here's where you're headed. Here's the equipping and the power and the love and the grace that I have for you. But I want you to walk with me. And then over here at door number two, you have you know, the world with a big silver platter saying, oh, there's all these pleasures and there's all of these delectable things under here. And, and why don't you just come and take a taste over here? Why don't you just forget that life and, and, and just go for your physical appetites and have more of an earthly mindset? And um, it, it, living the spiritual life doesn't always feel as gratifying as the world promises to be. And there are competing tastes out there vying for our reception as people, vying for our hearts, and they're inviting us to their table. But each path is going to produce a very different meal, a very different outcome. And as we see the outcome of Esau's life and his choices, he's the man that chose the carnal things, the worldly things, those earthly appetites. As we look at what that led to and how it worked out in his life, well, it should encourage us to cultivate a taste for spiritual things in our own lives. So let's look at a couple of his specific missteps from Genesis 36. First, look at verse 2. It says, Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebajoth. When we study the life of Esau and you go through the book of Genesis, we see that it wasn't just his stomach that thought carnally. He followed that pattern in his personal and his romantic relationships as well. You know, he didn't, he didn't find true love uh, and he didn't go looking for a wife who would honor the God of his father. No, we learned that he actually did the opposite on purpose. Uh, we're told in Hebrews chapter 12 that he was a fornicator and a profane person. And at least one of his marriages were specifically told they happened out of anger towards his parents and his desire to hurt them. He married one person on purpose to hurt his parents. Let's read the verses. Genesis 28, verse 8 says, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahaloth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife in addition to the wives that he had. Well, that's a great way to start a marriage, right? Ladies, that's what you're looking for in a man, right? A man who wants to marry you so he can get revenge on his parents. I mean, that's going to sweep you off your feet. Well, we see 
Esau making relationships with these women of Canaan, he found himself a Hittite, a Hivite, and an Ishmaelite. And he said, okay, this completes the deck here. Uh, this is the kind of the, 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 a short stack of Canaanite pagan wives that I can gather to myself. They're not believers. They weren't pure. They weren't in pursuit of God at all. And he, he was sticking it to his parents who said, hey, don't, don't marry a Canaanite. He says, I'm going to marry a bunch of Canaanites. How about that? Now, let's turn this on ourselves for a moment and expand it beyond just marriage and think about our personal entanglements, our friendships, our partnerships. Those relationships are significant to God because those relationships are going to powerfully influence our relationship with him and the choices we make in life. You know, he looks down at us and he says, the people that you knit up with, the people that you entangle your life with, that's, it's significant to me because they're going to have an impact on my relationship with you. They're going to influence you. They're going to be talking to you. They're going to be you know, putting pressure on you. Maybe it's positive, maybe it's negative. And so the, the Lord goes to great lengths to speak to us about the relationships we build in life, in the Bible. And, and, and he often warns us in the Bible. He says, hey, you know, if you tangle yourselves up with people who aren't in pursuit of God, they're going to corrupt your character or they're going to trip you up or they're going to at very least slow you down in your pursuit of Jesus Christ. And, and the Bible therefore says, hey, don't be unequally yoked with someone who isn't out to please the Lord. Okay, so what does that mean on a practical level? Does that mean that we remove ourselves from any contact or relationship or acquaintance with anybody who's not a Christian? Well, of course not. The Apostle Paul specifically says that would be impossible. You can't remove yourself out of the world. And in fact, that would be the opposite of the mission we're called to undertake as God's ambassadors to the world. He says, hey, I want you to be in the world, but not of the world. I want you to be out there sharing the gospel, sharing who I am and what I can do for people. But in the meantime, we should be warned and very careful about who we're hitching up to. Esau got hitched to, to some people that weren't going to further his relationship with the Lord. They weren't going to stoke his fire for the God of his father. In fact, they were going to say, yeah, no, come over here, and we've got all kinds of gods you can worship. None of them are living. None of them have any power, but don't worry about this God that your dad or your grandfather talked about. We've got our own thing going on. And so we should be warned and careful about who we're hitching up to. Those personal relationships, those people we're close with, are they people who please our Father, or are they on another path? Are they looking for other pursuits? Now, let's drop down to verse 6 of chapter 36. It says, Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all his animals, and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. And the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. Here we see that Esau made a conscious decision to choose his possessions over the presence of his brother Jacob. He says, okay, I, we, you have a bunch of stuff. I have a bunch of stuff. 
I pick my stuff. I don't want to be in the presence of Jacob anymore. I'm going to be in the presence of my stuff over in Mount Seir. Now, on one level, there was a practical element to his decision. Okay, the land's not big enough for all their livestock and all their stuff. But rather than unload some of his stuff, Esau decided, I'll just move away from my brother. I'll just rally to my possessions, showing that this is what is the most important, most significant thing to me, my stuff. You know, we just got reconciled after, you know, decades of being, uh, what happened was he stole his birthright, he stole his blessing, and Esau said, yeah, I'm going to murder this guy. So Jacob takes off, he's gone for a long time, they finally get back together, they reconcile, they're over that problem, and and then they get to this this point where they just have too much stuff, and, and what does Esau say? He says, I picked the stuff. I don't need my brother. I don't need to be in your presence. I just need my stuff. We'll go. We'll move. Uh, that's what was most important and significant to him. And, and here's the thing. It wasn't only Jacob's presence that he was leaving. It was the God of his father as well that he was moving away from. Because in this era, in this time of the Bible, God would come and appear to guys, Abraham and to Isaac, and he would speak to them and talk to them about what he intended and what he was going to do. The Lord had continued this method of conversation and interaction, and he had been speaking to Jacob and appearing to him and giving him visions. And Esau, of course, would know these things. And, but when the choice came, he says, yeah, I choose the possessions over this provider, And I don't care that God comes down and talks to you and that maybe I could be in proximity to that where the God of heaven comes and interacts with you. You remember those stories in Genesis where God comes down and has lunch with Abraham. God comes down and, you know, speaks with Isaac. God comes and wrestles with Jacob. And Esau would have known these stories. He would have known them to be true. And he says, I still pick my stuff. I pick the possessions over the provider. Now, Easton's Bible survey points out that the country of Seir was a desert. There were some springs there in the mountains, and there was some rainfall there, uh, but it was a far cry from the good land that the Lord was leading Jacob's descendants to, that land that he kept promising to Abraham and his family. He says, I'm going to bring you to the land flowing with milk and honey. That's where we're going. And and Esau settled for, for this desert mountain. That's where he went and built his life. He had five boys there. He had a bunch of grandsons. They were very successful from one way of thinking. They had stuff and power. They became great. But it was only a temporary earthly greatness that faded away. Take a look at verse 15 of our chapter. These were the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn son of Esau, were Chief Teman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gadam, Chief Amalek, These were the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Adah. These were the sons of Reuel. And then they go through all these other chiefs, chiefs, chiefs. Each one of his wives had these sons, and they were all chiefs. They grew and became powerful in their communities. And look at verse 31 now. It says, now these were the kings who reigned over, or excuse me, who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. And so they were quite the power family and they rose to power quickly and they were chiefs and they were kings and they had built this little kingdom for themselves there in the mountain wilderness. But they spent their lives out in the desert. They spent their lives out, you know, on some rock somewhere building a monument, you know, for themselves. They built up clans and cities and kingdoms and they're all gone. 
Do we know any of their names? Did they do anything for the Lord? No, not at all. In fact, they did things that were in opposition to God, in opposition to his people. Their earthliness turned very quickly into animosity towards spiritual things and spiritual people. You know, when the Israelites came out of captivity in Egypt, the very first enemy they have are the Amalekites. Amalek was the grandson of Esau, and by Exodus chapter 17, there was, no relate, there was no memory of their relation, that the Amalekites were actually related to the Israelites, and they said, hey, we're gonna attack you. You guys just got out of slavery for 400 years in Egypt, and we're gonna rip you up, even though we're related, even though you know, we should be uh, brothers with you. Later in Numbers chapter 20, the Israelites come to the border of the country of Edom. They're on their way to the promised land through the wilderness. And they say, hey, can we pass through? It's going to save us a whole mess of time if you let us pass through your land. And they say, yeah, no. If you set one foot into our land, we're going to bring an army out and we're going we're to attack you. Why? Because they were worried about their fields and their vineyards and their stuff. Those earthly appetites kept rearing their ugly heads in opposition to the Lord. And so they slowed the Israelites' progress to an incredible degree there in numbers. Later, as the generations went on through the Old Testament, the Edomites proved to be a consistent enemy of Israel. They were always helping the enemies and the armies who were attacking Israel. They would always go out and... and, and catch Israelites who are trying to escape and either kill them or bring them back to uh, the armies that were attacking them. Even at the Babylonian captivity, it was the Edomites who aided Babylon when they came against God's people there and only themselves to be destroyed by the Babylonian empire that they had previously aligned with. And so Esau's story, as you step back, as you look at his life close up or as you step back and look at his legacy, it's a very sad story. It's a sad legacy of sin and destruction and a, a legacy of disappointment. He shows us what happens to a person who is always looking for gratification without thinking about what it will mean in the future. You know, he only wanted his birthright when it was time to cash it in. Otherwise, he didn't care about it. After he reconciled with his brother, as I said, he only wanted to be around Jacob until it got in the way of all his stuff. You know, when they finally get reunited there and Jacob thinks, man, my brother's going to kill me. He's going to kill my kids. He's going to kill my wives. He's going to wipe us out. And he sends all of these gifts to him ahead. And he like, in a really sketchy way, like ranks his family in order of importance to himself. And he says, maybe he'll kill the front group and not kill the back group. And then thanks dad. But you know, he's all worried about it. And then Esau comes, he's like, man, I'm so excited. We're reunited. Our family can be back together. Hey, all that stuff in the past is done. You know, the Lord's been with me anyway. But then as soon as there's a threat to, you know, his stuff, as soon as there's a suggestion that, hey, you might have to unload some of your livestock if you want to hang out with your brother. He says, no, forget it. I don't want any of that. <laughs> he and his descendants kept trying to do great things, but they wanted to do them apart from the great God in his family life, in his personal life, in his kingdom life. And so in the end, the family of Edom became enemies of God 
and ultimately they were judged and destroyed. So how can this speak to us tonight? Well, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you are not saved, you're not born again, well, then you need to realize that in one way, you're Esau. That's the best you, you can hope for. You know, by being here, you've been exposed to the God of the Bible. He's a God who speaks and who makes plans for his people. He reveals himself. But if you don't believe in him, and if you don't follow him, then you're like Esau, living in the wilderness. You can try to do all sorts of great things, but you're doing them apart from the great God, and you're never going to find that satisfaction. You're never going to find that fulfillment. You're never going to find what you're looking for because you're like a bull who's seen red, just running around in a circle. And in the meantime, the Lord says, what I want to do is lift you up out of that. I want to give you a new life. I want to save your soul. I want to forgive your sins and, 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 and do something with your life. So if you're not a Christian tonight, you're like Esau, living in the wilderness, going from hunt to hunt, hoping to find some satisfaction somewhere. But you can't, because only God can truly satisfy. And those appetites that you're feeding in the meantime, the anger and the greed and the lust, well, ultimately, those are going to ruin your life and send you to eternal destruction and hell. And so tonight, if that's you, you need to make the choice to follow God, leave behind your earthliness, come to the Lord and say, okay, like Jacob finally did and say, I, I surrender. I'll go with you. I believe in you. I will do what you want me to do. Just come and save me from myself. But for the majority of us tonight who are Christians here, the application is, is simple. We need to be sure we've left our earthliness and our carnality, choosing instead to develop spiritual appetites. Uh, the story of Jacob and Esau reminds us that as believers, there is a struggle between the two natures in our hearts. The Lord installed a new nature in us when we were saved. A, you know, the mind of Christ is in us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. We are a new creation. However, on this side of eternity, we have that old sin nature, that old, you know, uh, flesh or whatever you want to refer to it as uh, that lives in there. He's seeking to bring down your relationship with God. He's seeking to rear his ugly head. And so within our hearts, we have the spiritual man or woman and the carnal man or woman. And we're to choose to walk and not in the flesh, the Bible says, but in the spirit. Here's what the apostle Paul said in Romans chapter eight. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And Jesus, when he was on the earth, he told us to, that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, hey, if you want to be blessed, if you want to make progress, if you want to get where the Lord wants you to go, hunger and thirst for righteousness. But you know something? Righteousness is an acquired taste, right? I mean, our, our nature as human beings is a nature of rebellion and our nature of sin. And that's something that needs to be subjected in by the power of God as Christians. And, and righteousness and, and the pursuits of God, they're acquired tastes, many of them. I came across an article the other day citing a paper on how to acquire a taste for new food. 
You know, it says, hey, you're, people are going to be telling you all the time, you need to eat this, you need to try this, you eat some sushi. And it's like, maybe you don't want to eat sushi. Well, here's how you have to, here's how you learn to acquire a taste. And there's a paper on it or whatever. But some of the statements at the beginning are, are interesting. It's talking about food, but uh, has some interesting parallels to what we're talking about in the spiritual realm. It says this, why set out on a chase for new satisfactions when my own are immediate and available without effort? Well, the answer is that acquired taste can be rewarding. Acquired taste jumpstarts new satisfactions where I cannot find them. Through acquired taste, I grow in my capacity to enjoy what the food has to offer. Acquired taste is a form of intentional belief acquisition, distinguishing it from ordinary or discovered taste. And it's not a far jump to think about that in the spiritual life of saying, okay, I'm going to choose to acquire a taste for righteousness and a taste for God's word. I I want to intentionally believe and acquire this taste by practicing and by going to the source and by taking it in and learning to love what the Lord wants me to love. You know, when we see these two brothers, Jacob and Esau, we see that Jacob was by no means perfect at all. But the fundamental difference in his story is that he pursued God rather than some appetite that was immediately available. In the end, the Lord was able to grow him and use him and satisfy him. And so let's choose to not walk the road that Esau walked. Let's pursue God and trust him to be the provider, being nourished by his word and his living water, being hungry and thirsty for righteousness and the presence of the spirit of God. It's done by allowing the Lord to do what he already says he wants to do by submitting to him and say, Lord, have your way in me. And we can do that tonight as we worship and as we partake of communion together. How we do communion here at Calvary Hanford is that, you know, um, Sean's going to come up. He's going to play a little bit. Um, when I get down, just come up, grab your elements, go back to wherever you're seating. You partake at your own pace. Spend some time in prayer Uh, asking the Lord to just search you and examine your heart and to show you, you know, how, how to be in step with him and what changes he might want you to make or allow the Lord to encourage you. And then we'll end our night singing and just enjoying the presence of God. So let's pray and then we'll get to that.